You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is your respite from groupthink here at the conservative conscience. Welcome back. This is Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Network. And it is a glorious Friday, October 19th. Actually, the, what is this? 237th anniversary of the fall of Yorktown when General Cornwallis surrendered to General Washington. Um, That was a time when we built a country off of dying on our own hills for our own beliefs and our own territories and our own values. This day and age, we like to die on everyone else's hill. As Americans... All of us, collectively, we like to die on the sword of Islam. We die for one faction fighting another in the Middle East forever, spend trillions of dollars, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Somalia, whether it's Yemen, Syria, Iraq. And now we're told we must dump on the Saudis while they're fighting the Muslim Brotherhood, Turkey, Qatar, and and Iran because of some guy who may have been killed by them. We still don't have the evidence. And even if he was, he was a Bin Laden sympathizer. But we have the media gripping the entire nation over this. Now, part of this, as I've said before, and this is, by the way, Foreign Policy Friday. We're going to bring on our normal guest, Jordan Schachtel, our national security uh, reporter for CR and CRTV. But the thing is, the media is only able to get away with this because conservative media doesn't have a counter-narrative. There's two things going on, and they're diametrically opposed. One is dying on the sword of Turkey, which is basically what they want us to do policy-wise. The other is our border. And those are the two things I really want to focus on today in our Foreign Policy Friday. Um, and, And Trump so far is doing the right thing on this caravan. But as I've said before, the caravan is just a small slice of what is going on at the border. It's the most um, brazen attempt to violate our sovereignty. But in sheer numbers, it's just a tiny percent. So it's a no-brainer. We should stop that. We should stop a lot more. But you know, so far, there's, there's good news. But again, we don't have a party and a movement that's focused on this. Believe me, if we would focus tomorrow, again, have a movement to pressure Congress to call them back or at least start promising a border fight on the budget in December, doing some of the 25 items I've suggested, believe me, you'd have the media focused on that. That's a lot better of a hill to die on because that is our own territory as we were fighting for initially in our very first war and – certainly in the decisive battle of Yorktown. So worth commemorating today for our Foreign Policy Friday. But I'm just shocked at what is going on here, how the media is milking this for so long, and how almost everyone, Republican elected official, conservative pundit, almost all of them to a person are all bought out by this. 
it's groupthink. Some of it's Qatari money. You'd be shocked at how many so-called conservatives are getting Qatari money. And um, it's just virtue signaling. The media defines morality today. See, you have to understand stuff happens in this world, like a lot of stuff. (laughs) Millions of things happen. You only know it happens because the media says it happens. There's a lot of other things that happen that the media chooses not to focus on. And we can define morality based on that. I mean, you want to talk about dismembered bodies. You know, they're always, again, believing the Turkish account here. Let's assume it would be that it's true. Do you know how many dismembered bodies Border Patrol discovers at our border? Forget about the Americans dismembered, such as Jared Vargas, who was burned alive, which is a hallmark of a lot of these criminal aliens, um, by a criminal alien who had numerous opportunities to be deported, arrested or apprehended by police, and he wasn't deported in San Antonio. And now his mother has cut a very touching ad for one of my best friends, Chip Roy, running for Congress there. And believe me, Chip is dead serious about doing what we're uh, proposing. You want to see legislation introduced and a man taking the House floor and talking about it every day, naming and shaming members, it will be Chip Roy. You can go to his website, by the way, and and, and give him a donation because I'll tell you, even though this is more of a reliable Republican district, he is being outspent, oh my gosh, I mean, three to one in that race because he's not going to get money from the health care cartel. That's another thing, by the way, going on. I have a piece out today on how Republicans have sabotaged our messaging on Obamacare, how they're making Obamacare great again, how they're owning, they're assuming ownership of Obamacare. It is the biggest domestic policy story around. And and it's ironic. It ties into our theme today, which we've pointed out many times. Conservatives on domestic policy are like Americans in totality on foreign policy. We die on other people's hills. We die on other people's hills. So we're actually fighting to preserve Obamacare now. Long article on that we'll link to in show notes um, so you get a hold of it. But I wanted to have our usual Foreign Policy Friday, and it looks like Jordan is done with his assignment, and he's ready to come on the show. So all of you guys by now know Jordan Shackdale, my colleague here at Conservative Review, our national security correspondent. You follow him at Jordan Shackdale. He was lucky enough to get his own name as, as his Twitter feed, something I've never been able to succeed at. But it's a must-follow Twitter feed as well as his articles if you really care about national security policy from a non-groupthink standpoint that doesn't fit into the typical boxes that we're um, used to hearing about. Uh, your interventionalist, isolationist, just purely the truth from a holistic standpoint because you always have to look at things holistically uh, when it comes to national security. And that's really what we're lacking this week with the news um, with Saudi Arabia and the whole Khashoggi blow up. So with no further ado, Jordan, welcome back to Foreign Policy Friday. Yeah, thanks again, Daniel. Good to be with you. All right, I'm pulling my hair out this week. I just... This is really a surreal moment, I think, in our careers, what we're seeing. Um, you know, uh, the, the Turks, as well as other thug governments, Islamic or otherwise, are forever 
doing all sorts of things to reporters, legitimate journalists. Um, you know, they tend to disappear in this country and in, in, in those countries. So this one guy who was, you know, literally just um, a month or two before he disappeared and presumably got killed, uh, he wrote a column defending the Muslim Brotherhood. He had access to bin Laden. He was an apologist for al-Qaeda. And he went missing. And the Turks, who should be our arch enemy but are, are our NATO ally, um, are accusing the Saudis of killing him. And the media has made this almost on par with the separating families type of thing with with immigration stuff. And I think that's a good place to start because what the media does very well is they isolate one component. So abortion is – don't you feel bad about people who are raped? Right? They, they reduce the entire abortion issue to, to that. Um, immigration, they reduce the entire issue to, well, do you want to deport someone who got here and wound up serving in the military? And here too, do you want to cut someone, a journalist's body into pieces? And what they do is they promote a policy outcome that they want based on that messaging, and it doesn't comport with it. What I want to get from you is a review of this week to give a sense to our listeners just how unbelievably powerful the pro-Muslim Brotherhood uh, presence in, in, in Western media is that according to CNN, Twitter has suspended accounts that appear to be setting out to smear missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, but has no evidence that the accounts were pro-Saudi um, or Saudi Arabian-backed. Um, so they're suspending accounts. I, I, let me give you one other data point before you comment. Um, you and I both know that there's a number of people that are obsessively into Trump. Right? They're not conservative as an to itself and praise Trump when he helps that keep him in line when he steps out of line. They're, it's just Trump, monkey see, monkey do. Trump, 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 Trump all the time. They will never deviate from Trump. Yet, we, we could mention people. Charlie Kirk is one that comes to mind who is, has never deviated from Trump. But when it comes to this issue, they're actually taking the side of Turkey over the, over the Saudis. And breaking with Trump. Where the hell is this coming from? Yeah, I, I think it, it really points to the, the power that foreign um, lobbyists and foreign uh, reporters have over the mainstream press and over commentators, especially. Um, all of this Khashoggi stuff, uh, you know, it's been sourced to uh, Turkish media sources or Al Jazeera, which is a Qatari state owned media source. And all of the sensationalist reporting um, is based off of anonymous accounts from foreign, basically foreign intelligence agencies. And there's been, it's really an embarrassing stain on, you know, the current uh, way that the press is set up today, especially the legacy media, you know, whether it's the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, CNN. And, you know, now these big social media platforms like Twitter are threatening to ban people and are apparently already, you know, engaged in doing so for simply um, saying unsavory things about, or I guess reporting on, you know, the, the full Khashoggi story um, and his, his longtime sketchy connections and his advocacy for Islamist causes. And apparently that now, you know, according to the CNN article is grounds for being banned from social media because people are, you know, willing to state their opinions on this matter as if like, 
you know, this person was, was a saint and we can't question him because, uh, you know, unfortunately he, you know, he died under unknown, he appears to have died under unknown circumstances. It's just shocking. The lack of inquiry from the mainstream press, the fact that, you know, conservative review, uh, the federalists and a couple other outlets are the only ones in town, um, you know, having to tell the real truth about Jamal Khashoggi and, you know, it's really just a, a giant stain on, on the press for sure. But but when I say the press, I mean, I, a lot of conservatives are just some of it's yeah. ignorance. Some of it is kind of like I, I, I've been giving the analogy. It would be the equivalent of Japan supposedly beating the crap out of some North Korean or killing some North Korean guy. And we're supposed to dump on Japan because they bombed us in Pearl Harbor. Literally, that, that's how stupid it would be. There's no recognition. They're, they're using the Saudis' reputation of a previous regime that did – they're like – we're, we're like what Trump's like, you know, going weak on these guys that, that killed a guy who had an American green card um, you know, just because uh, he wants a business deal. So that, that's the narrative, and, and, and again, like, no one could ever accuse yeah. me of defending Trump if I don't agree with him. Believe me, I would go after him. But he's right here in the sense that it's not a matter of business dealing. It's a matter of, you know, everything they're talking about the Saudi is doing that's changed. And it's the guys making the accusation that are the ones doing the terrorism. And it would literally be like taking the side of China and North Korea against Japan in 2018 because of 1945. Yeah, I think a lot of people have previously held grievances against them. Um, you know, how U.S. policy didn't really tackle uh, you know, the Saudi government's potential involvement, um, you know, prior to and, and after the 9-11 attacks. But, you know, as you stated, that was a very different regime, uh, especially this crown prince who has basically declared war on the uh, political Islamists in his society. Um, this is, you know, the un unprecedented activity um, for the Saudi royals and for people to compare, you know, this regime to the to the one, you know, that was presiding over Saudi Arabia during not during 9-11. You know, it's a little ridiculous. I think the uh, how you how you talked about uh, J Japan and you know, we wouldn't be bombing, uh, you know, modern day Japan because of what they did during Pearl Harbor and you know, although there's some space between those two events, it's the same can be said about, you know, the current Saudi makeup of the monarchy there and, you know, comparing it to 9-11, which is just kind of foolish. And, you know, anyone that's been really paying attention to uh, Saudi Arabia would never, I, I don't think, you know, it's, it's fair to uh, to say, you know, the Saudis are evil because 9-11 happened and therefore, you know, they're, they're irredeemable as a government and as a society. And, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's a really stubborn, I think, way to look at it. And, um, you know, it, it fails to take into account the, uh, you know, the, 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 the regime changes that have gone on in Saudi Arabia, too. Sure. And again, my concern isn't so much being pro-Saudi. I, I, I don't I mean, I think yeah. what we need to focus on is the dismembering of the bodies at our border by the drug cartels, which, you know, the media doesn't care about. I mean, when you have 30,000 murders a year in Mexico, a lot of them a stone throws away from 
uh, Juarez, Ciudad Juarez, I mean, from, from El Paso and the sister city is Juarez and, and Laredo. I mean, it's right over there. And, and literally it's empowered by the very virtue signaling of the media on immigration. But, but what it seems like, it's almost like a formula of flood the zone, focus on one thing in a vacuum, obviously lies and misinformation and virtue signal. Define morality from from the onset, and then you can't have a balanced public policy debate, which is what this is. You know, you, you could have an ethics debate over, well, you know, if a guy was kind of a bad guy that – I mean here's my question, Jordan. Let's say um, David Duke traveled overseas, and he's an American citizen whether you like it or not. Um, he's an American citizen, traveled somewhere, some country – and, you know, we think some country that maybe didn't like his white supremacism wasted him in an embassy. I'd love to see the media reaction there. Um, yeah. You know, they they would they would basically say he deserved it. Um, you know, and, and that's what this guy was. He was a David Duke. Um, now, did David Duke ever kill anyone? I don't think he ever did. Um, was he responsible for killing anyone? I don't think he ever was. He's just a hateful guy. This guy was an Islamic supremacist. He liked Al-Qaeda, um, and he wanted Israel to be destroyed. He hated America, even though we, we gave him a visa. So, like, I, I don't understand. The question is not whether, you know, the American government should go after a guy. Like, we didn't. The Saudis did, assuming they did it. So, I mean, I mean do you – are you seeing any action in Congress? In other words – are you seeing any movement in Congress on this issue, or do you think it's going to blow over um, by the time they reconvene? You know, it, it, it's hard to tell because the media is pushing this so hard. And um, there are you know, plenty of Republican congressmen and senators who have gotten themselves involved in this issue. Um, God only knows why. But, you know, you have people like Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, uh, Lindsey Graham. <laughs> all uh, you know, tweeting about this, talking about it on television, um, and and just totally buying into this fictitious media narrative about you know Jamal Khashoggi, the reformer, the U.S. Uh, resident, and um, you know we still don't know exactly how he got a green card right away, and he only lived in the United States for I think about nine months um, after you know taking self exile from Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it, it, it's it's not. I I really don't understand how this issue. You know, the media is going to want to continue you know, speaking out about this, and you're trying to make it into an election campaign issue on how Trump is corrupt, blah blah blah. But um, you know, I just don't see how it can sustain itself. I, I think that you know, if you ask um, regular regular Americans who don't, you know care so much about the elite status of being a Washington Post writer, I, I think they just don't – they don't really care that much. And, and they shouldn't. We have our own problems, and that's that's the theme today. I mean I think yeah. it's what we're going to name the show, Dying on Islamic Hills. We just lo- love to die on our enemies' hills. A pro-Al-Qaeda guy got killed halfway overseas when – you know, meanwhile, that very country, Turkey, is killing good people. I mean, could you imagine the people? I mean, you followed this during the, I don't even know what to call it, because some think it was a false flag, but the whole attempted coup on Erdogan um, two years ago 
a hell of a lot of people disappeared then. <laughs> yeah, very strange coup, but uh, <laughs> for sure. But um, yeah, if you look at any type of um, you know press freedom indexes, Turkey is the number one jailer of journalists uh, two years running now. And of course, that apparently makes Turkish sources uh, legitimate, more legitimate to the main street press, which have been totally reliant upon them for, you know, all of these scandalous details about a bone saw, you know, chopping Khashoggi's head off. They're, they're trying to make this thing like an ISIS execution. And it, it never made any sense, along with like, you know, these technological issues with him Sinking data from an Apple Watch out to his uh, supposed fiance. You know, there's just so many bizarre angles, and uh, you know, the American the American media has totally um, either fallen for it or you know, are willfully enabling these foreign propaganda operations. Um, you know, that are being run out of Turkey and gutter, and it, it's just so it, it, it's totally shameful what's going on. And, and that's the uh, irony you know, for them. You, you know, speaking about cutting up bodies and ISIS, I mean, where the hell do you think they're being funded? I mean, a lot of that's funded yeah. from Doha, <laughs> and it's it's like you know, it, but like I told people, because of the longstanding history and the lack of information. You know, the Saudis strikes a lot more fear and raises the hair on people's necks a lot more than Qataris. It doesn't really register with people because the nuances are lost that they've become the new Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia has become more like the Sisi government. And that's a, the last point I want to make before we move on to Afghanistan is what, what you just said is that you have the government and you have the society. The government is no longer the problem, right? They're They're fighting the bad guys. It's but ironically, I mean, the people, a, a lot of them are still problematic. You have a lot of pro-Al-Qaeda people in Saudi Arabia, and MBS is trying to clamp down on that. So what I'm shocked about is all of a sudden people are – they're whipping people up into anti-Saudi fervor. All right, fine. I'm game. What about the 55,000 foreign students we continue to let in every year? It's about a third of the foreign students we take in. Um, are all from Saudi Arabia. And, you know, if you're telling me that this guy is able to come in, it's not a student visa, but he gets a green card and literally was on the ground with Al-Qaeda's leadership, and that could just somehow be waved through, how many of those 55,000 do we know are not from families that are very problematic? I mean, I really don't trust it. I mean, and I know we're trying to find out, and you know, unfortunately, the administration has this uh, habit of only working with the liberal media as much as they complain about it, and then they don't get back to us, um, which is just a pet peeve of mine. Um, I know we've we've had that problem before, but yeah, how did he get? I mean, isn't the assumption he got a green card under Obama? Uh, I mean, under Trump? Yeah, I mean, he was only here as of June 2017, um, and I don't know if if he tried to claim political refuge, but um. He had important patrons, um, the number one guy being the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, who's a billionaire Saudi prince, and he is a, um, a, a large shareholder in Twitter. So, you know, it got me thinking when Twitter was starting to ban people <laughs> for speaking out against him that maybe there's something going on there with the Saudi prince that, um, you know, was enabling Khashoggi and funding his efforts and his organizations. 
Um, but yeah, you know, the immigration ar- ar- argument, it really exposes the left. And, you know, for them, I don't think this is, they don't really care so much about Jamal Khashoggi or, you know, fixing, um, you know, keeping America safer for them. I, I think it, it, it's all about, you know, finding ways to, unfortunately, you know, target U.S. policy. Um, a lot of these Obama guys, you know, they were on the other side of this. They were for the Arab Spring, for these Islamist uprisings, and that's what Khashoggi represented. So, um, you know, this is important for them to push that narrative forward and, you know, try to show that the Trump administration policy of um, supporting, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia has failed because of this one solo incident. So, you know, I think there's a lot of motives going on here. And, um, you know, certainly they do not seem at all interested in in, in uh, securing the border or, or the nation because, you know, they'd be having these discussions about, you know, the unlimited amounts of, you know, Middle Eastern student visas that were, were sending out every year to these people and, um, yeah. you know, asking how Khashoggi with his, um, with his several controversial ties could, could, you know, automatically get a green card and skip to the front of the line. And, you know, what does that say about, you know, the other people that are trying to get into the United States that don't have billionaire patrons and stuff like that. Because that really scares me. And I think this is a big angle of hypocrisy that's lost on a lot of people in this debate. They're trying to drudge up 9-11, which, which is amazing because a lot of us were yelling. I mean, I've written so many columns on the need to go after the Saudis. This was, But this was before the regime change there. And, you know, it fell on deaf ears. You know, no one wanted to go after them. Yeah. And then now, so here, here's the irony. We're invoking 9-11. But again, what was 9-11? Like, 15 of the hijackers were Saudis. Yes, you let them in. That was an immigration problem. And that has not changed. See, the regime, from a statecraft um, standpoint, it's, it's changed. But from a people standpoint, it hasn't. And our immigration policies, if anything, we, we take it more than we did. We started the King Abdullah Scholarship like in 2004. And um, you know what, what really scares me in general is that our strategy with national security and homeland security and foreign policy is so backwards. Trump's trying to change some of it, and certainly on immigration, he's trying. But we don't have a movement and a party really coalescing behind it, giving him more meat, giving him a better way to articulate it, and that – we're getting involved in all these dumpster fires, so we'll talk about Afghanistan and um, Yemen and whatever, Syria. But then the countries that actually have stable governments and, – and, and this is a positive. There is a growing trend of Muslim countries where the leadership is cracking down on fundamental Islam. And we're facing now with our immigration policies the – Biggest paradox you could imagine, where you have Egypt, Saudi Arabia, um, places like Uzbekistan, where the governments really clamp down on fundamental Islam now. And we take a tremendous amount of immigration. Now, normally you'd expect, well, if we take immigrants from there, hopefully we'll be the ones that are you know, fleeing the craziness. But ironically, and we saw this with the Uzbeki terrorists that we had in the country – a lot of them are coming here. You wonder if it's like Khashoggi. I mean, that, again, that was a little different with the Washington Post angle. But they're ironically escaping persecution, so to speak, at the hands of people that are, so to speak, persecuting the persecutors. Yeah, and they we're creating a magnet for the bad guys, I think is what is basically going on. And, uh, 
you, you, you know, it's tough to blame these governments when we've had, especially over the Obama years, we had an open door policy, um, to, and we didn't do any ideological checks on these people. So, you know, even though regardless of whether these governments were, you know, Islamist friendly or reform friendly, I'm sure they were more than happy to send, uh, you know, their worst citizens overseas to the U.S. because, you know, we were willing to take them and they think, okay, not our problem. You know, so <laughs> I think that's another reason why we're in this mess. I mean, this is what happened with um, Sadat, you know, in, 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 in the 50s. This is when we started having the Muslim Brotherhood in America and the, you know, Muslim Student Association. This is when they were created. They It yeah. was the exile. I mean, and we're going back to that where, we there's more of a hospitable environment for Islamists in the West than in some Middle Eastern countries. And rather than celebrating and, you know, being happy about that, we go and trash the, their leadership and then we bring in their people. It's just the exact, I mean, and anyway, I mean, if we couldn't get more backwards, so Afghanistan, um, want to get your comment on this. Yeah. Of course, again, the media doesn't give a damn because there's no good uh, narrative here for them but i really care that you know you could disagree about a military strategy and then you could get to a point where there is a literally it's there's no justification for what you're doing and you are sending our guys to die on the sword of islam for this bestiality supporting government there in afghanistan that's so-called fighting the taliban it's all really one and on thursday the taliban attacked a meeting between Afghan officials and uh, th- this was a top commander there, Lieutenant General Austin S. Miller. Um, Americans in attendance were wounded. Miller what could have been killed. He wasn't yet. Some reports say he had to draw his sidearm. But three Afghan officials were killed, including General Abdul Razik, um, so-called key power broker there in southern Afghanistan. Um, and this was an insider attack. Dude, yep. what's going on there? Is there any change in government policy? You know, is, is is there anyone waking up in government? Yeah, there was a you know security meeting between uh, General Miller, who's the head of all U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. So he is the number one ranking military officer in the country, and he miraculously was not killed in an insider attack that took out. Um, you know, the police chief of Kandahar, which is a very important strategic um, province for the Afghan government to hold. And of course, you know, they're struggling with that and it doesn't appear that they're able to hold anything at this point. Um, but, you know, the Taliban killed the guy, the police chief of Kandahar. They killed several other high ranking Afghan military officers that were, you know, loyal to the U.S., and they almost took out our top <laughs> commander um, in an environment that should have been very safe. But, you know, again, it was one of these uh, green on blue attacks where Afghan um, military officers decided that their allegiances were really with the Taliban. So they decided to turn their guns on the Afghan and U.S. Uh, soldiers. And, you know, it's not clear if there were any U.S. officials or service members um that were seriously injured. I understand that there were a couple evacuated and they're stable. Um, 
but you know, there's so many instances in Afghanistan and, you know, unfortunately, what is it? Once a week, we're hearing that a U.S. serviceman has been killed in Afghanistan, either, you know, in an insider attack or he's patrolling, um, you know, some random province on the Pakistan border, which is like a total hellhole. And, you know, there's no real mission other than, uh, I guess, stop the Taliban from taking over the country. But at the same time, we're engaged in quiet, secret talks with the Taliban. So the policy doesn't make any sense. And, it, and it's, you know, it, you hate to put um, service members in this position where they're, where they're being sent over there with no clear objective other than to, you know, build uh, roadside projects and schools for Afghans. Um, but, you know, our people are being put in a vulnerable position right now. And the only option right now I can see is we just got to get out of there as soon as possible and try to convince, uh, you know, policymakers that it's the right call. You got you got to get out of the country. You know, I wanted to get your comment on and we'll link to this um, in the weekly standard. The Afghanistan war is lo- over. We lost Thomas Jocelyn. Um, that's very significant because Thomas Jocelyn from the Foundation of Defense of Democracies ha- had one of the really best ongoing commentary for years, district by district, of what was going on in Afghanistan. Very few people knew more about it than he did. And, you know, we agreed with a lot of what he said, but also he was one of these people that he understood what we were doing was stupid there. And he's been saying that for a while, but. He never really clearly articulated what it is we can do. His point is, well, you know, we're at the same time we're fighting the Taliban. We go and, uh, you know, negotiate with them. And we're, but, you know, I think our criticism was no matter what you do, there's nothing to defeat. And I, I guess what I would it, it's it's well worth reading the article, but I would tweak his title a little bit is to make it not as gloomy. I don't think it's a I don't think we're losing anything. There's nothing to lose or win. There's nothing there. Yeah. There, there, there's, I, I think it's something that I think you and I probably would have said differently 10 years ago. And it's all because of the nostalgia of 9 11, but it was all incidental that they just happened to have the training camps there. But that was, you know, it, it was sand and mountains. There's nothing there. Um, you know, we, we needed to just bomb the hell out of it and then leave. But instead, we owned their own dumpster fire for them. And I think if you get out from a position of strength, now, it's a loss in the sense of, you know, gosh, several thousand lives lost of Americans for that. But, but that ship has sailed. I mean, nothing is going to bring that back. You're only going to create more. I think you focus on immigration. You stop the immigration. I mean, we brought in Geez, I don't have the numbers with me. It's well over 100,000. We brought in 20,000 just last year from Afghanistan. I mean, you could imagine if even a small percentage are a problem. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're over there so they don't come here. Well, and then we get over there and bring them here. So, I mean, you go, you go figure that out, Jordan. So, and by the way, just one of the points Thomas Jocelyn makes, I was laughing that, um, we allowed the Taliban while we were negotiating with them. They opened up their branch. It's in Doha. <laughs> our buddy, the, the Qataris, are funding that yeah. too. <laughs> Jeez. Our, our great allies in the Middle East, of course, uh, doing oh. their thing. And, and you know, you, you see it. Unfortunately, the, the, um, you know, the backwards thinking on behalf of the Pentagon is um, it, you see it in every press release discussing the death of an American serviceman. And 
you know, the, the Defense Department, every single time U.S. service uh, members killed in Afghanistan, the the last sentence is usually like, we need to continue this mission to honor uh, so-and-so's legacy. And, it, you know, for me, I, I you know, it, um, it, it's just like repulsive because you're essentially saying, you know, that this person sacrificed for this greater cause we have in Afghanistan. But you know, reality tells us something much different. And, and it's just, you know, it, it, it's really sad that, you know, if you really want to protect American lives, I think the only option is to get them out of a vulnerable position there, not to continue to sacrifice, um, you know, for the sake of some foreign country. And it, it just, you know, it's becoming so ridiculous that eventually people need to stand up and say, you know, this isn't, this isn't okay. And, um, you know, although, you know, no one wants to hear that, you know, if, if, if a soldier dies, you know, you want, you want to honor his service and you can certainly do that, but don't be, you know, delusional and say, oh, you know, he, he died because we're on the cusp of winning this Afghanistan war. You know, it's just simply not true. You know, I was, I was floored by a comment um, General Mattis made, defense secretary, uh, about the killing of this General Razik, as, as General Miller was was right in the room, he said, "We need to find who's done this." <laughs> I was just like, "We need to find who's done this." I mean, I, I, and, and I shouldn't even be laughing, but it's like th- th- this is how clueless they just don't get it. What do you mean you need to find who's done this? You put American forces. Yeah, they, they- yeah. No, they they just don't. I think like the ideological component just goes right over their head. You know, it's not that for them. I think they see it as like you know, where is this base of of operations that's um, you know crafting all of these plans? But in reality, you know, it's a war of ideas, right? And then when people become either bribed by the Taliban or ideologically in favor of the Taliban, it's tough to you know find these people because they're just going to keep popping up right so it's yep. just it's also, the wrong way also, to think about it for also sure. it's the wrong approach you know i wrote a whole article yesterday about sessions and the doj make taking good steps to go after hezbollah in latin america alongside ms-13 and the drug cartels and you know in that piece i launched into kind of a long commentary i felt it was a you know time to really give this over of just the threat it poses and just I juxtapose it to things like what's, you know, Khashoggi and Afghanistan and, and all this stuff. Like this is actually on our soil. You have um, ma- mainly, you know, Islamic immigrants we bring in that ran these used car lots. They get access to Hezbollah's banking empire to buy extra used cars. And look, I'm not saying any Shiite-owned used car sales lot in America is uh, terrorist uh, funding, but uh, you better watch out. You know, um, I I personally spoke with um, Derek Maltz. I've had him on the show. He was the head of DA Special Operations Division who oversaw this investigation, and he said there were hundreds of them on our soil. They were funding the wars we were in. They had this whole circuitous cycle where they would send them the cars to North Africa, like countries like Benin. Um, and then, you know, you could see it on the satellite images, the cars and the lots there. They they saw them and they would sell them there, get the cocaine money. It would come back to America, kill our people while funding weapons at the same time. 
It's amazing. It's a two for one with the cocaine and cocaine is skyrocketing. So, you know, his ball is involved in that. That's their trade. Um, and that's the question you ask. That's the theater in which you ask. We need to find out who's done this because, you know, you need money and there's got to be a network and you could identify it and you could disrupt it. I could I could punch a person in the face. I can't punch a hundred a swarm of a million flies in the face. So you know what I mean? Right? It, it's a matter of the tools and what you need to that is where it's at. It's the terror finance. Um it's Doha. It's Turkey. We just slam them with soft power. There's no money, there's nothing there. But if you put your troops in Afghanistan and you're actually on their right, the Taliban cannot do anything to us in America. There's nothing they, they don't have a global empire like like um Hezbollah and again even Hezbollah if we didn't have stupid immigration uh, policies we wouldn't have the agents in America. And by the way, Maltz told me and I could say this. I didn't put it in my piece, but you know he's giving me permission to say this. He said not a single one of these people have been deported. There were no indictments. Obama administration never followed up on it. So it's good that it looks like Sessions is really trying to go after that. He told me he's very concerned about the criminal alien component of it um, when I had Sessions on the show, the attorney general. But um, man, Jordan, I, I'm just like you go into Afghanistan. Yes, there's any number of millions of people that it's just that's what they're going to do. I mean they're just going to – there's no – Jerseys of pro Afghani government, Islamist and Taliban. I mean, Taliban are essentially right. the husbands, sons, and fathers of Afghani's. Well, at least the good thing about you know, the border issues we're having with these terrorist groups and these cartels is that these guys are actually much more easily identifiable than Taliban members in Afghanistan, right? <laughs> Especially like MS 13. These guys are all tatted up, usually with an MS 13 logo or. You know, these these people are openly affiliated. You can certainly, you know, there's people in the government that have traced their networks to specific individuals and they couldn't, you know, theoretically map out the entire network of all these drug cartels and the cartel bosses. And even when it comes to Hezbollah, um, because of, you know, who they're working for, and their nation of origin and you know because they're you know generally Shiite radicals, it's kind of easier to pin down, you know, where Hezbollah is coming from in Latin and South America and you know, of course where the cartels are coming from. And you know, the, the Taliban, of course, is a whole different as you discussed, you know, there's no jerseys. They're either ideologically affiliated or, you know, they're members of the military, members of society. They're, you know, Pashtuns that feel loyal to, you know, their cousin who's a Taliban commander or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's just such a complicated, uh, you know, way to disrupt a, a terrorist organization. Whereas in the southern border, you know, you can have a plan of action, which, uh, you know, AG Sessions seems to have. And, uh, you know, you can really tackle those issues on a group by group and person by person basis. Like I always like to say. It's not hard as a first world country to get control of our own sovereignty. But if you want to ask me the solution of Yemeni sovereignty, Afghani sovereignty, places like Syria that really weren't even nation states historically, I don't have the answer to that. But but 
the better question is, do we need an answer to that? And I think that's what some of our friends that don't understand true hawkish, true America first, true tough on terror policies, that they don't know how to distinguish between a network that threatens us and just a run-of-the-mill – I don't want to call it even a country, but just a land, a territory that just has a lot of fervent Islamists there that – the, the, it takes money. Money is the mother's milk, and that's why, as I noted in this piece, um, and it's been noted by a lot of scholars, that more and more increasingly, terrorism is being funded by organized crime. And you know that it's easy to I go after that, and, and that's without money, they can't do anything. Without suicidal immigration, they can't get their people on our shores. Um, and then. You know, finally, last question before I want before I let you go. Given that we've identified that Turkey and Qatar, certainly Iran, but I, I want to put that aside for a minute. Turkey and Qatar are really the primary troublemakers that are funding all the organized terrorist groups. What steps do we need to take that we certainly won't do now, but <laughs> that we should be doing to, to, to put pressure on them? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, when it comes to you know, the base in the Aludeid base in Qatar, I don't think it should be taken as a sign that even the Qatari government will always have a partner in the United States. And I think that, you know, we've discussed this earlier, but if, if Qatar isn't going to stop funding terrorism, we shouldn't be providing them with an Air Force base that basically uh, um, insulates them from foreign threats. I'm obviously not advocating that you know Saudi Arabia rolls in there and conquers the country, but we can't pretend to be allies with a country that doesn't have our best interests in mind. And of course, you know, hosts the headquarters of Hamas and the headquarters, political headquarters of the Taliban, and all these groups that are you know continuously killing our soldiers. And you know, Qatar, of course, is dealing with Iran. Um, you know, they eventually need to be called out. And um, uh, unfortunately, you know, there's many elements in the defense community that think that, you know, our partnership is fine when the facts clearly don't show that. And there's also a lot of, um, you know, money to be made in doing business with Qatar. Um, so we, I think we need responsible American officials to really set them straight. You know, we have tremendous leverage over the country that we don't seem to be using um, because we have all these defense agreements and they're very reliant on the U.S. defense um, apparatus. And then when it comes to Turkey, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, glad to see that Pastor Brunson has been freed, but there's still a very Islamic authoritarian society, you know, that openly, the government right now is openly supporting Hamas and, you know, causing so much trouble in the Middle East. Um so many reports about ISIS and Al-Qaeda funding in Syria. They're certainly on the side of the, the Sunni rebels that appear to be jihadists. Um, and then we continue to play, you know, it's this, it's this common theme of playing pretend with the NATO alliance. Everything's fine. I think people just need, and, you know, this probably starts with the Department of Defense and the White House, of course. But we need to, you know, have a reality check and uh, talk about things as they are and not you know, as we want them to be with NATO, with 
with gutter and, and, and such. Well, maybe one day we can get Bolton on the show and, and ask him some of these questions. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just like domestic policy where one market distorting bad intervention begets another. So, you know, again, what, like you said, what do people tell us with cutter? Well, gosh, Daniel, what do we do with them? We got our, our big base there. Well, why do we have our big base there? Well, uh, so we could get involved in Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, that that's that's the issue. So, um, so much more to talk about. Thanks, as always, for joining us. All your insights at Jordan Schachtel on Twitter. And you can click on his uh, archive of articles um, if you go there as well. We'll see you next week, Jordan. All right. Thanks so much. Well, take care. That was Jordan Schachtel, our national security correspondent. One of the things I really appreciate about Jordan is that, you know, even though he's young, he's a steady Eddie guy. Just doesn't get taken in with the groupthink, the sensationalism, the pressure to be moral based on the media standards of morality, which are actually immoral because they're rooted in ignorance and just um, all around um, just uh, just disgusting. Um it is it is really really sad that so many even young conservatives that become these instant boomlets on Fox News just get sucked in they don't they don't think straight and uh we're proud to have a good team here um in the remaining moments i just wanted to go back to immigration i mentioned that Trump is effectively using diplomacy with Mexico, and they are clamping down on this caravan. So, you know, I hope I'm not wrong, but I do expect that this caravan will be shut down. This is from Fox News. U.S. and Mexican officials have agreed on a plan to handle the the approaching migrant caravan. Um, Under the deal, which was developed over the course of several months, Mexico requested that U.N. Uh, High Commissioner for Refugees established shelters along its southern border with Central America. That's near Guatemala. Um, Just today, the Mexican government, and this is a very important step, requested intervention of the UN to help Mexico review asylum claims from the members of the caravan. So that was my idea, to have Mexico do it, get them off our soil. Let's see if that happens. But again, just remember, it's not about the caravan. It's the hundreds of thousands of others that come over quietly Trump has got to assert our sovereignty. The president always has the power to block people from coming in. You could take that to the bank. But if you're going to allow lower courts to engage in civil disobedience, and you're going to allow the misinterpretation of asylum law and the Constitution executive power over immigration, then I don't know what to tell you. A border wall will not help because they come to the points of entry. This is where we're always fighting yesterday's battles. In the 90s, the problem was mass numbers. Just, you know, that's when initially the population filled up. We just had hundreds of thousands, I mean, often over a million in one year coming over the border. And mainly then it was the base, you know, just the basic illegal immigration problem. A wall would have been very helpful then. And, and it's still, I, there's, you know, it's it's better to have it between the points of entry, um, and it certainly will take a lot of pressure off the border uh, patrol. And you know, we had Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Union, on the show several times, saying how you know strategically it would be able to direct the traffic to where where they want it. But then there's always the second half that if you're going to openly say, "Well, I have to let a process asylum claims," that's not true. 
The president has inherent Article 2 powers plus delegated powers through 212F and several other statutes I list in my article to block anyone from coming in if he feels they shouldn't come in. Interior enforcement, more robust deportations beyond what law allows, you know, you have to go through Congress. But if they're not on our soil, and by the way, sneaking into our soil doesn't count as being on our soil, but certainly to block them from coming in initially, that is all the president's power. So this is why I don't want to hear this border wall in exchange for amnesty because amnesty is the bigger problem. By the way, Mark Short, the former political director for the White House, just said today on cable news that he floated an idea for 1.8 amnesty for 1.8 million, which again, there's no hard number on that. It would have easily been several million in exchange for funding for a border wall. And he kind of criticized other people in the White House, I'm assuming people like Stephen Miller for trying to add on legal immigration cuts to it and other you know things. And he was like, well, we could have gotten the wall. But what's the point? The policies need to change. Now, it would be nice long-term to tighten up the statutes. What I'm telling you is nothing ever overrides sovereignty. You could take that to the bank. You know, a lot of people know from the quote of the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Do you know who said that? It was Justice Robert Jackson, the great champion of due process, who once said during – it was – gosh, it was during the 1940s. There was this guy inciting riots in Chicago, and that's where he applied it with the First Amendment. That was an American citizen. So meaning we would do everything we can to even bend the law and the Constitution to stop an outcome of this invasion. Certainly when the Constitution requires you to protect from an invasion and that it's you're, you're the primary duty of the president. Oh, Daniel, we need to change the law of the courts. No. If you're going to listen to those lower courts, forget it. And by the way, just one note on the lower courts. Um, really disappointing news today, and it might just be a technicality, but still the outcome is disappointing. Remember I mentioned to you before about circuit assignments. So for those of you who don't follow the judicial system closely, each Supreme Court justice is assigned a circuit that they have unilateral control over to issue immediate stays. So let's say, um, you know, the Ninth Circuit issues a crazy ruling, and you know, the Justice Department saying, "Look, I'm, now really they should just disregard it." But if they want to play the judicial game, well, I'm not going to wait months and have national policy shut down because of a court that we know the Supreme Court wouldn't rule that way. So you could petition that individual member of the Supreme Court, and they have the power to just overturn um, overturn it. I mean, not, not adjudicate it, but just put a stay on the injunction. So you could file an emergency motion for, for relief, and, and you could get it. You could be granted. Now, they usually don't, and they usually like to refer it to their colleagues. But I noted that Anthony Kennedy was the guy who was in charge of the Ninth Circuit, and now that's vacant. And according to the rules of – it's really all statute that sets this out, according to the rules of the judiciary, that the one with the highest seniority would get first dibs on it. And I was hoping Clarence Thomas, who now oversees the 11th, which is really not such a bad circuit, would oversee the 9th because, again, we mentioned the problem is that 
Roberts and others might not be willing to take up these cases and the lower court stands and it takes a long time. And this is a way to just immediately shut down and deter the Ninth Circuit. Just start aggressively granting emergency stays um, using your individual circuit assignments. Unfortunately, it looks like Roberts announced the assignments today and it's Elena Kagan who got the ninth. Now, I can't Say it's like, oh, Roberts thinks Thomas would be too aggressive and didn't uh, give it to him. It could very well be Robert, you know, Thomas didn't want it. I don't know. And I uh, posed this question to Amy Howe, the editor of SCOTUS blog. You know, she would know this stuff. And she was like, yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't know. Um, it could very well be Thomas just wanted to stay with his home circuit, which was the 11th. He's from Georgia. But all I'm trying to say is, whatever it is, this is just another data point that the so-called conservative Supreme Court is not helping us because whether it's Roberts didn't want an aggressive guy sitting there or whether it's Thomas didn't necessarily want it, it's all their faults then because they need to aggressively rein in the Ninth Circuit. You know, If you believe the Supreme Court is supreme, which almost all of them seem to believe, then it better be supreme over the wayward lower courts. Which is why I, you know, I think Sessions is getting very close to this position, and I'm proud of him for it. Just, just stop it. Stop. You, you have to follow the law, especially when the lower courts are disregarding Supreme Court precedent. So, um, you know, this is uh, this is where it is. Anyway, as always, I need your help supporting our sponsors so we could continue. Speaking the truth. I mean, you see how scary this is. You can't even speak the truth about Turkey and Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood, um, you know, without getting cut off. It's pretty darn scary. But I need you guys to go and support purple mattresses. Not just because they're conservative. Not just because they are amazing supporters of the conservative conscience but because sleep is everything in life you will not be productive in whatever you do whether it's fighting the libs or whether it's supporting your family whether it's being a doctor or an accountant or whatever else if you do not get a good night's sleep and i had this problem for a number of years i just wouldn't sleep well purple mattresses were designed by rocket scientists with this amazing silicone material that feels like you're sleeping on air, but it's firm at the same time. Perfect mixture of firmness and and um, comfort and softness. And they also sell cushions, one of which I'm sitting on right now, and I sit on pretty much all day, so I don't have the sciatic nerve issues I had before. And they are offering a one-time promo to our listeners, that you get a free pillow, which in and of itself is worth it. If you text to Daniel, 474747, they offer a 100-day free trial. It's a long time. Okay, 100-day free trial. That's a long time. This is not even, you know, 7, 14-day. If you truly want to sleep well, you take them up on this offer. You don't have to pay anything. If you don't like it and you don't want to pay you know, beyond 100 days or if you do and you feel you can't afford it, fine, return it. Shipping's free. Returns are free. If you want to get it, which I think you will, 
10 year warranty. But you don't forget if you for, you should visit their website anyway. Check out their cool videos. They're pretty. They're they're funny. They have a great sense of humor there, explaining their um the science behind what they do. But um, if you want to get the promo, you got to text this time. Text Daniel to forty seven forty seven forty seven. That is four seven four seven four seven Daniel to get your free pillow, purple mattresses, the most comfortable and most conservative mattresses in America. Have a great weekend. God bless y'all. Thank you for listening. Thank you.